so let's get started with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We ask you to empty us of all the things that worry us and stress us out and cause us anxiety. We can put those things down for an hour and make some space inside us for your spirit to fill us up. And hopefully as that spirit fills us up, we can be transformed and inspired to leave this space changed, that we may be vessels of your peace and your hope in a world that needs that so desperately. I invite people to think of those in their lives who need your healing touch, those who feel alone, those who need to know that they are loved. We hold all these people in our hearts and in our minds today, and we will hold them in our prayers. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in chapter 19. Chapter 19 is the next chapter after Paul's second missionary journey. So as we concluded last week, Paul has been traveling around, and Paul's second missionary journey ends with him effectively back in Jerusalem, kind of. He, at the very end of the chapter, scoots up to Antioch. And so today in chapter 19, Paul is not really going anywhere. Paul is relatively stable in Ephesus, but we see some stuff that happens in Ephesus that is quite engaging and interesting. And so a little outline of chapter 19. First thing, we're going to see that Paul travels from Antioch to Ephesus, and we'll talk about the geography in just a minute. So Paul in Ephesus. Then we get a very entertaining story about the sons of Siva. And then we get a good old riot in Ephesus. Can't have evangelism without a riot. So we're going to start with Paul in Ephesus. So Paul has been traveling around, and a quick reminder that Paul's missionary journeys have gotten farther and farther from sort of home base of Jerusalem. And as we have looked, Paul's second missionary journey, he more or less left Jerusalem after the Jerusalem Council, went up through Turkey, crossed over into Macedonia, and down into Greece, where he spent most, kind of the most impactful part of his journey would have been here in Athens and Corinth. Then at the end of chapter 18, he scoots on back to Jerusalem, and he has traveled from Jerusalem up to Pisidian Antioch. Remember, there are two Antiochs. The big one is in Syria. The other one is in Pisidia. <clears throat> and Pisidia is sort of kind of the armpit of Turkey. So where Turkey curves in the Mediterranean right here, Pisidian Antioch is kind of right off this map. <clears throat> Paul starts there today, and he will travel across Asia Minor, which is kind of Phrygia, Galatia, and he will come over to Ephesus. So Ephesus is that kind of southwest section of Turkey in Asia Minor. So he's back near the Aegean Sea in Greece. Sorry, hold on. <coughs> so after this second missionary journey, Paul is traveling around and he lands back in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is one of his favorite places. Ephesus is a church he loves, a church he knows well, but it's a church where he hasn't been for a while. So if we remember the second missionary journey, Paul was in Corinth 
for a long time, a year and a half he spent in Corinth, in addition to all the other traveling. So it's been a good two years since he's been in Ephesus. Even though he loves this Ephesian group of people, he's not been around to help them as they have developed. So other people have been there to help guide the community. And what we see is that some of the things that the community has done in his absence have kind of missed the point. So let's take a look at chapter 19. We're going to start at the very beginning, read a few of the first verses as we set the scene. So Paul passed through the interior regions, which is Turkey, and came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? And they replied, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they answered, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on him, on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. So Paul ends up back in Ephesus, and he finds these nice people who are believers. They're doing their Christian stuff. And how he comes upon this question, I'm not entirely sure, but he just says, have you received the Spirit? What's the Spirit, they say. And he says, holy crap, you know, we need to like remind you of what's going on. And so Paul explains to them what really is going on here. Now, we've already seen a similar kind of story where people were baptized into John's baptism. Remember, John the Baptist was a very charismatic person. He was funky. He was hippie. He was doing stuff outside Jerusalem. He drew a lot of attention, so much attention that there were people who were followers of John. I've said it before in here, there were lots of people teaching stuff about God. Jesus was not the only rabbi walking around with people following him. Lots of people were doing this. Disciples is not something that we name to only the people who follow Jesus. Disciples are students, just another word for students. And so many people had disciples. Jesus had a particular set that we know, but there were lots of other people, including John. Now, we know from the gospel lessons that John pointed toward Jesus most of the time, but we also know after Jesus's baptism that John began to wonder if Jesus was actually the guy, and John wondered this because John's only human. John was expecting a Messiah in the same way that many Jews were expecting a Messiah, someone who was powerful, who would overthrow the Romans. And when Jesus just kept walking around and healing people and talking and telling nice stories, John started wondering, well, wait a minute. Jesus is a nice person, right, teaching good things, but is he really the Messiah? And we have a scene in the Gospels where John sends his disciples— to Jesus to say, are you the one? So John had his own people, and even though John at least a few times pointed toward Jesus, John at least once wondered if Jesus was really the Messiah. So there are people who liked what Jesus taught, but who may not have had this clarity around being Christian, being baptized into the way of Jesus. This is an interesting thing for us because I think if we are just kind of casually considering the story of Christianity, we kind of assume that there are some fundamental things that everybody got from the beginning. 
But we know within church history that it wasn't until the fourth century when the church councils were called by Constantine, emperor of Rome, that we got clarity around a lot of theology. Now, we did have the Jerusalem council. A few chapters ago in Acts, we had that big question, do you have to be Jewish to follow Jesus? And the Jerusalem council definitively said no. Now, we also know that definition did not necessarily connect with all the people looking to follow Jesus. There was still this sense that even if you don't have to be Jewish to follow Jesus, it's kind of nice if you're Jewish to follow Jesus, right? That's sort of where they landed. So yeah, technically we're tolerant of all the non-Jews, but there's still almost this like real followers of Jesus and the other people. That continues in relatively innocent ways for a few hundred years. It's not until we get the Council of Nicaea in 324 that we have some definition around how we understand God's work in the world. And I think we've talked about this in here a little bit. An easy question is, is Jesus actually divine? Well, we all think that Jesus is divine, so that means Jesus is God. Okay, well, that's nice, except if Jesus is God and Jesus was on earth, does that mean that while Jesus was on earth, God was not in heaven? God was on earth? Well, no, that doesn't make any sense because God is God, so God's always in heaven, and so Jesus is still God, but Jesus is on the earth, and now we've got the spirit stuff. And so how about God is three in one? That sounds good. And so we get this Trinitarian idea nailed down for the first time that then becomes, in the Second Council of Nicaea, what we say on Sunday mornings that is the Nicene Creed, which is, who is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? We don't get that definition until the fourth century. Up until then, people are doing their best. This is a great example of people doing their best. Were you baptized into the Spirit? No, we were baptized the way John was baptized. Paul says there's something better. And this is the similar story that's going to happen in lots of churches all over the place. Paul's letters are fundamentally trying to create a Christian identity that is at least somewhat similar across the Roman Empire. It's not all going to be the exact same thing, but there's an attempt at creating some unanimity among all of Jesus' followers in that first century. Does that all make sense? Okay. I think we can understand that, and we probably then think, well, I'm glad we all understand what being Christian means today, right? <laughs> if you think that, then you're not paying attention. So we, we today have lots of different ways to be Christian, and each different group thinks they know how to do it best. And even within each group, like denomination, you've got plenty of people who think they know how to do it within their own context. And I just cannot help but tell the story that was in N.T. Wright's commentary, for those of you who may have read it ahead of today. He recalls a story that someone told him about going to a church and after years and years and years, the rector or vicar was, you know, had taught lots about Eucharistic theology and identity and all this other stuff. And still, there was a woman who would come to church every Sunday with her cat, and she would bring the cat up to the communion rail, take the host, break it in half, and give half to her cat. Why? Because the cat was the reincarnation of her dead husband. 
what? So, I mean, hello, right? I mean, everybody's got some opinion about the way that we do this. And, you know, her husband needed communion, I guess. And so every priest has some story like that, believe me, or a few of them. So we can all sort of casually think that we know what it means to be Christian, except everybody, even down to a person, has some uniqueness and distinction around what it really means to follow Jesus. And so that's why I like being Episcopalian, because we're sort of like, sure, you know. <clears throat> I mean, give your cat communion. Really, is that going to hurt the cat? No. I remember my mom used to say, why exclude anyone from communion if we really think it is what it is? Doesn't it only help them? Right. So, works for me. So, we've all got different opinions about how we do this following Jesus stuff. What we see right here in this, in this first section of chapter 19 is Paul trying to create at least some fundamental connection around what it means to follow Jesus. There is the Spirit. When you are baptized into the way of Jesus, you are baptized into the Holy Spirit. That's probably one of those universal fundamental things that we still can all pretty much agree that's a Christian thing, like baptism. All right, we can all kind of get on board with that. Baptism, and then of course communion, are the two sacraments that we see articulated by Jesus in the Gospels. That's why in the Reformation, they're the two of the seven that are lifted out of the Roman tradition as sort of the primary or principal sacraments. And that's what we still emphasize today. Even though there are lots of other good things to do, those are kind of the two fundamentals that everyone's sort of on board with those ideas. So Paul, he's in Ephesus for a few months, he teaches, he speaks boldly in the synagogue, he's trying to continue to convince people of the truth of Christ, and yet we see that some are still stubborn and refused to believe. This first section, relatively simple, is really meant to tee us up for what will be coming at the end, or the second half, really, of chapter 19, which is this riot in Ephesus. Ephesus. Just a moment. Ephesus is an extremely important and powerful city in the empire. Paul is not accidentally going to the big cities. He's not accidentally ending up in places like Athens and Corinth and Ephesus. These are places where he can take the gospel message to the most people in the least amount of time to make the biggest impact beyond the actual boundaries of the city. It's no different than today. If you want to make an impact beyond a particular geographic region, are you going to go to some really nice little country town in West Texas, or are you going to go to Dallas? People who live out in the country tend to kind of stay out in the country, right? I mean, they are busy and they are doing good work and they stay there. More people in the city travel beyond their geography. And so they take their ideas beyond with them. So if you go to centers of economic activity and convince the people who are powerful in that sphere of an idea, 
it is more likely that those people will then export those ideas beyond those geographic boundaries. That's why Paul will pick some of these big cities around the empire, ultimately in Rome itself, so that the message can be disseminated beyond just his one person. People can carry it as they travel to other economic centers around the empire. So any questions about this very first section? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so Madeline's asking about speaking in tongues. If we look at chapter 19, I didn't read this part because I didn't want to talk about it. Um, <clears throat> you may have noticed I stopped in the middle of that verse. Okay, so verse 6, when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and that's where I stopped. And then it says, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. All together, there were about 12 of them. So speaking in tongues is something I do not understand. Um, it has, I've never done it. I, to my memory, have never been present when that kind of thing has happened. I mean, I've seen it on videos, but, and I've read about it in books and articles, but I've never seen it in person. Um, speaking in tongues is most of the time something that needs to be interpreted. And so classically, when someone speaks in tongues, they're sort of overwhelmed or possessed by the Spirit. They speak in a language that is not discernible by the people in the group, except by someone who is typically there to translate. So the most common speaking in tongues situation would be somebody is not necessarily having like a spasm, but they're speaking in a gibberish <clears throat> that someone else is then moved to be able to interpret. So it's very common that you would have someone just rambling about something that you can't understand with another person who has been kind of blessed with the capacity to interpret whatever it is that they're saying. I, I don't know. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing where is that possible? Sure, it's possible. I've never seen it. It's not part of our tradition. It's not necessary, and we know it's not necessary because throughout all of Paul's work, although there are moments where people receive the Spirit and speak in tongues, there are more moments where people receive the Spirit and none of that is mentioned. So necessary, no. Possible? Well, I mean, they say it is. And so that's all I got for you, Madeline. Next. They know what you're saying. That's a lovely way to make it sound sensible. <clears throat> so what she said was that a way it's been explained to her is someone kind of spontaneously understands a language that they have no reason to understand. And I think that makes sense of something that is often, I don't wanna say nonsensical, but the most common way that, especially Pentecostal traditions, experience speaking in tongues is not that way. It is not speaking a language that someone shouldn't understand and yet they still do. It is a gibberish. It is not a 
human language of some kind. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Um, I mean, I appreciate your, your experiences. It's not important. It's not part of our tradition. Um, if you speak in tongues, you're totally validated um, and affirmed. Okay, let's move on. I got nothing more for that. Okay, so Sons of Siva, section two. <laughs> Teach me to ask for questions. Um, Sons of Siva, so this section really transitions us into the discussion of power. So as I mentioned, Ephesus is a powerful city. And what will happen ultimately in the riot section is that their power manifests in a relatively scary way. We begin to move toward that in this middle section where we get a weird little story about people trying to adopt Paul's power. So let's just take a look at it. It's an easy story. Let's read it real fast. Open to verse 11. We see that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that when the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. And then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit said to them in reply, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, and so overpowered them that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. When this became known to all residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone was awestruck, and the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Okay, so weird story. What I want to make sure we are clear about is these are not bad guys, okay? They are described as Jewish exorcists, so at this time, it was believed that many maladies of different kinds were demon possession. Now, that could manifest itself as mental illness, emotional illness, you name it. People that we would now define in specific ways were just thrown in a category of demon possession, all right? So it is okay that people used to think this. We need to now, well, what am I going to say? Um, demon possession can be problematic in the literal sense. <sighs> I think that, I, I think it is appropriate that we understand evil is a real thing, and evil can manifest itself in very tangible ways. I won't necessarily go so far as to say that there are literal demons that can possess people, because I think that theologically speaking, evil does not come from God, first. Second, evil is a manifestation of our choices that are apart from God, that can, over time, build up and grow to almost appear to have their own momentum and power. But ultimately, it is when we choose not God that we allow those evil, that evil to grow. Any of us can do that. Some of us are much better at that than others. And 
when we choose God, we ultimately kind of purge that evil from us over time. Okay, so that's a lot in a very few amount of words that ultimately means, theologically speaking, we have free choice. For me, my understanding of the way that God works in the world is absolutely rooted, number one, in free choice. I am not a Calvinist. We are not predetermined. You've already heard me say this before. God does not have an explicit plan where he knows everything that's going to happen to everybody all the time. That is problematic. It is comforting to people, and in a moment of crisis, if someone said to me, well, this awful thing that happened must be part of God's plan, that's fine, because that, that is a comfort to many people. However, awful, terrible, horrible things that happen, if that's really part of God's plan, that's problematic for me, because we say God is love. God is grace. God is hope. God is light. <clears throat> if God then is also hurtful, painful, uh, retributive, um, or maybe even worst of all, fickle, then a lot about what we do as people who follow God, I think can become very problematic. Now, you don't necessarily have to agree with me, but I think it's important for you to understand that that's where I come from, is from this sense of God is good all the time. We, when we choose to live apart from God, allow the bad in, and then we can become vessels of that out in the world. Okay, so all of that is important to note because the way that I interpret a section like this is that those Jewish exorcists are trying to do something good. They see that Paul is being effective in healing people, and so they want to be effective like Paul. They begin to adopt Paul's language, which means adopting Paul's power. If Paul's using the name of Jesus in a powerful way to heal, then these <clears throat> Jewish exorcists are functionally just trying to be powerful like him. It doesn't work. And you've got this moment where this possessed man, whatever that is, overpowers these exorcists and they have to run out of the house naked. So that's kind of funny. Um, what that really, though, is moving us towards is the general civic awareness that whatever Paul is doing, whatever Jesus's followers are doing, is overturning the social order as it exists at the time. And that's what is most important. So at the very end of this middle section, verse 20, we see that God's power is emphasized. Verse 20 says, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. That is a very interesting statement. There is a sense in Luke's narrative that God's power is growing and that God's power will ultimately win. I don't think that Luke's 
theological awareness in that statement is quite what it could be. The implication here is that God has somehow not been powerful enough and that God's power is now growing. I believe we can understand this two ways. The way I don't want you to understand it is that God is somehow becoming stronger in a vacuum, right? God has not been as strong. Now God is getting stronger. Instead, the way I want you to understand this is that God's strength comes from our faithfulness. As we become more faithful, God's effect in the world becomes more powerful. It's not about God's limit. It's about how we limit God. Does that make sense? What is happening in Ephesus is it's kind of like a revival. More and more people, I mean, we see this all the time, right? When Tinkerbell gets hurt, what do you have to do? Clap your hands, right? You have to believe. And part of what happens here is more and more people believe. And as more and more people believe, we as vessels open more and more of the world for God's power to creep in and make those changes. We do that. God does not force it. And as Paul and his friends are doing their work, God is growing in the effect because of their faithfulness. All right. Any questions about that? Mm, yes. So, question is, if there is not, uh, let me see how I can articulate this. It, if there's not sort of an embodied evil, why do we get stories or moments that does imply bodily, like Satan as a person, like an embodiment? Um, so what I would say is, there are multiple levels to this. The first is, every biblical story is told by people. So even inspired writings, which is what the Bible is, is still told from a human perspective. We naturally, and have for all human writing time, personified ideas that we don't quite understand. So, and we will see that when we start talking about Artemis, right? I mean, the, the rest of chapter 19, we talk about the Greek gods that are present in Ephesus that Paul is trying to fight. People have always tried to personify seasons, natural forces, unexplainable phenomena, so that it becomes uh, discernible in some explicit way. So when I see a story like Jesus in the wilderness, where he says, so he says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter later. Um, but in the wilderness, he is, the way the story is told is he's walking and talking with Satan, and, or, or the great tempter. And I understand that kind of story as being Jesus's wrestling with his human temptation away from God. That there isn't this physical walking and talking. 
and mostly because it is considered dualism to have an embodied identity like the devil. So functionally speaking, if we've got God and the devil, what you have are two gods, a good God and a bad God. That's actually what we have when we speak in those ways, which is why most, most kind of modern theology defines evil as the absence of God. It's not a thing unto itself. What it is, is God not present, which is why many, many people have come to a place where they don't even really think that typically you see you've got heaven and hell, right? Like, where are you going when you're going to die, right? You're either going to be in heaven or you're going to be burning forever in hell. And what a lot of people have landed on, particularly in the last century, is hell is not this damaging, painful experience forever. What it really is, is not God. Either we're with God forever in this perfect, complete, beautiful reality, or we're nothing. That's actually hell. Hell is actually the absence of God. It's kind of like, what's the opposite of love? It's not hate. It's apathy. And so rather than having this dualistic idea of the world, most of the time, you know, darkness is the absence of light. It's not a thing unto itself. And that's more or less the way that I understand it, is Jesus, and it's an important moment Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and, and maybe Jesus' temptation in the garden before his arrest. I mean, there are moments where his humanity is important and is emphasized. That's radically necessary for me. It does not—the Christian faith, to me, is differentiated by other religious traditions because we fundamentally believe that God knows what it's like to be us. That's what makes what we do different. If God's just God and apart from us, well, there are lots of religious traditions that fundamentally say the same thing. What we do that is different is we say God loved us enough to become like us. And it is in that kind of gift and love that when we go through pain, God's with us. He gets it because he was here. And that does include temptation. Jesus did not succumb to temptation, but it doesn't mean he wasn't tempted. And that's what all those different moments, why I think they're very critical in Jesus's identity, which is one of the reasons why if I had to pick a gospel, I don't pick John. Because for me, John sterilizes Jesus's humanity too much. I like the synoptic gospels more because they actually show Jesus wrestles with temptation. He doesn't choose it, but he's in it, and that matters. You know, one of, my, um, one of my jokes is that you've got, every tradition kind of anchors itself in different moments in time, and one of the jokes I remember being told is that in Catholic sacristies, you know, where clergy get vested, in Catholic sacristies, you always have a crucifix, and in Methodist sacristies, you always have a picture of Jesus praying in the garden, and in Episcopal sacristies, you always have a mirror. <laughs> so, you know, it is, it's true. Um, so we've got, we've got these moments in scripture where 
it does create in us a complex theology, and I think that that's really what's going on. It's important that we don't personify or anthropomorphize ideas that really can't be. You know, I've always thought it was very interesting that you know, in the Islamic tradition, you can never show an image of God. It's, it's functional, it's illegal. That's not a bad idea, because when we show God in any way, in any image, we have now lessened God. And so when God becomes the old man with the beard, that's not God. That's someone attempting to articulate something about God that they see, but it's very dangerous for us to ever say God's any kind of image because God is not. And yeah, we have to functionally in language. I mean, you hear me refer to God in masculine pronouns, not because I think God's male, but because I just saying God over and over and over again in a sentence just becomes clunky and difficult to listen to. You have to use some kind of pronoun and we don't have neuter pronouns in English, but functionally speaking, that all limits God. And when we, even in our storytelling, show good or evil in some particular way, we've already gotten it wrong. And I think that that's functionally what's happening in those stories. Sorry, that was a long answer. Okay. Any others? Yes. So the distinction that you're wondering about is through our faith, do we become better and do good work? Or do we make space for God's power to become more impactful, influential in general? Okay, so I would say wherever you land on this, there's a theological spectrum. And you and I were both raised, both raised Catholic, so we might naturally like the idea that our faithfulness produces in us good work. That's a good Catholic place to land. Because remember, the Roman Catholic theology has a lot to do with the way you operate in the world, which is one of the reasons why the reformers jumped so far the other way toward justification by grace alone, by faith alone, right? Where your works do not save you. It is only through God's grace that you are saved. So you do have on sort of that spectrum the idea that we are actually the ones doing good work, all the way to we do nothing, and it is only God's power that does good in the world. And there's a big, long spectrum. And so you can sort of land somewhere in the middle, and like Episcopalians always do, Anglicans do try to strike this balance. Now, I will say, I, I, f um, I like, there's just no other way to say it, um, because I think that salvation is about reciprocating God's love, I do think that we can necessarily limit God's power in the world through our unbelief 
because God chooses to prioritize our love back. Okay, let me say that differently. God's love for us is what I would call true love, which means true love is not forced. You cannot force someone to love you, period. So God loves us totally and completely, and God loves us enough that our reciprocation of that love is up to us. It is when we reciprocate God's love that we actually begin to move toward the salvation that God hopes for us. God limits his power in that way. So it's not about how God's limited in some external sense, but God has created a boundary around what he will and will not do because he loves us enough to give us that choice. And it is when we choose to love him back that we actually do open up a way for his power to work more effectively in the world. Yes, Lynn? No. Can evil exist without humanity? No. If evil exists without humanity, then the way that I think God is defined in Scripture does not make sense. So, of course the answer could be yes, but if the answer is that evil exists without humanity, then what we have inherited through our scriptures does not hold up. And so my choice is that there is truth in our scriptures that has been as a revelation of God. And so therefore, no, evil exists because we let the evil in. And we see that right at the very beginning, right? I mean, the whole idea of we fall. Okay. So the Bible's book ended by creation and recreation. That is Genesis and Revelation. In the creation story, God creates something perfect. And that perfection is a gift to humanity. We screw it up. And when we screw that up, because we, what? We functionally choose not God, right? So God says, here's this perfect gift. This is how you live in this perfect world. And we choose to live differently, which means we choose not God. And by choosing not God, we allow the evil in and that perfection breaks down. The whole arc of the rest of God's salvation story is around his trying to get us back to that perfect world. And we see in Revelation, which by the way, is not a prediction of the future. Okay, if you've never studied Revelation, Revelation's not like what's gonna happen someday. Instead, it's just like the creation story. It's about the truth of God's relationship with us. And that in the end, through God's work and our faithfulness, we actually do overcome the evil that we let in and we become a new creation and reach that perfect place once again where we are completely with God. Now, could that be an indication of what happens after our death? Could that be something that we realize now? Well, what we hear with Jesus is that the kingdom is very close 
and that our faithfulness brings about God's kingdom, which does seem to gel with the vision that John gets in Revelation that with our faithfulness, we can bring back God's perfect gift to us. That's a whole lot. I mean, that is like months and months and months of theological study within those books. But that's, I just simply want you to know that's not just because I like it. That is an attempt at trying to synthesize all these different points of the story in a way that is consistent. Because what we see too often churches do is they pick the things they like even when they contradict each other. Which is one of the reasons why I am not into highly doctrinal or dogmatic traditions, which would be many Protestant churches, right? I mean, I, some of my best friends are Baptist, but friends, we've got traditions, and including the Romans and the others, that are super, super legal. Lots of rules, lots of parameters, lots of answers to very specific questions that just don't hold up when it's all held together. And that's why I choose a tradition like, like ours, because we don't go farther than we can. So if you've ever studied statistics, right, there's the idea of extrapolation. You can take data and you can extrapolate just a little, right? If you take a few years of financial data to try and predict the future, you can predict a little bit right? Take markets, for example. If you want to predict the market performance, you can predict it a couple days, maybe, maybe a couple months. When you start predicting the market for a few years, you are way off base, and you will just for sure be wrong. I mean, it doesn't matter even what happens. Once you go too far, you are just wrong in every way. And to me, that's where we have to be careful as a faith community is we can, we can go a couple steps, but every single step we take away from what is core is more and more likely to be wrong. And there are some traditions that go so far, there is just no possible way they can be right. That is all I will say about that. Okay, so we've got seven minutes. Okay, let's look at the end of chapter 19. I can do this relatively quickly because the idea of this section of chapter 19 is pretty straightforward. To begin, let's make sure we know where we are in our Greek mythology. So Ephesus has a patronal god, and that is Artemis. So Artemis is in Greek mythology what Diana is in Roman mythology, okay? Same god. And she's the goddess of wild animals and is also associated with the moon and fertility and that sort of stuff. And so if you can think back to any of your kind of visits to museums around the world, Artemis is often the one portrayed with lots and lots of breasts. So you might see those statues where you've got a woman's head with like 20 breasts and then images of babies down her legs, that's Artemis. So Artemis is associated with lots of just good things, right? Fertility and all the other stuff. So Artemis is the goddess that Ephesus, who blesses the city of Ephesus. And so in return, 
the Ephesians have, over time, built a temple to Artemis. At present, where Paul is in the first century, it is the third iteration of the temple to Artemis. The temple to Artemis is one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. Huge, beautiful. Think the Parthenon, right? It's Greek column temple style. It no longer exists, I would assume, obviously. Um, and it is important for us to just simply note that Artemis and her brother, her twin brother Apollo, and you may know Apollo as um, he is the patron of Delphi, the Delphic Sibyl, which was prophecy and that sort of stuff in the ancient world. Apollo and Artemis are just, they're good. They're blessings. They're not mean or vengeful or anything like that. They're just meant to be good gods and goddesses. So Artemis is a very central, important goddess in the city of Ephesus. Fundamentally, what happens here is Paul shows up with his people. They start to undermine the entire system that has been established over hundreds of years where people pray to and worship Artemis and good things happen. It is so easy for humans like us, we get this, to think that because life is going well, whatever we think is important must be the most important thing, right? So we are in America in the 21st century, okay? Apply that however you wish, but it is very easy for us to say we are wealthy, affluent, secure, intelligent, you name it. That must mean all of our values are good. No, that does not equal. And so we have to, we, but we can put ourselves in the Ephesians place to say all these things we've been doing obviously is what we should be doing because it's working. We are wealthy, affluent, secure, intelligent. And what Paul does is comes in and undermines and overturns all of that. And the people are not happy. Jump into verse 24. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the artisans, and these he gathered together with the workers of the same trade and said, Men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. You also see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost the whole of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods, and there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned and she will be deprived of her majesty and that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. Okay, summary here. It's not about religion. It's about money. It is never about religion. You take any conflict anywhere that is using religious language, it is not about religion, Prince. It is about power and money. And that is what happens here in Ephesus. They do not care about the religion. They care that people buy the statues they make and they make a lot of money. And so these people use religion to stir up a huge crowd that is likely as big as the theater of Ephesus, which could have held more than 25,000 people, okay? So this riot, this is not 100 people in the street. These are tens of thousands of people that get stirred up like crazy maniacs. Think about a really ugly football game. All right, I remember when I went to Miami, 
when I was a child, we went to see Notre Dame play Miami. Miami is not nice. And we parked somewhere. And as we were coming out of the game, we, re- we approached our car and both cars next to my dad's truck were destroyed. When I say destroyed, every tire slashed, every window broken, every, because they had Notre Dame stickers on their cars. Ours was just sitting there because now we went to cheer for Notre Dame, but they didn't know because there was no sticker on our car, thankfully. But it's that kind of crazy, riotous chaos that people can get swept up in. That's what happens here. It is ugly and it's dangerous and it's violent until, jump over to verse 35. The town clerk quieted the crowd and he said, citizens of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the statue that fell from heaven? Since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. You brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the artisans with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and their pro-councils, let them bring charges there against one another. For a minute, people lose their mind and they riot and it's dangerous. And people even keep Paul from being a part of it because they're afraid he may be killed. But then rationality comes back in and in one of the earliest scenes in the chronology of the Christian tradition, we see someone who is not Christian identify and defend what is effectively not illegal. Okay, that was so very uh, convoluted. What Paul and his friends are doing is not illegal. And until it's made illegal, which it will be, there are scenes like this throughout that evangelism period where somebody has to come in and say, listen, stop it. You're mad about things that you don't have any real reason to be mad about. They're not doing anything illegal. If you've got a real problem with them, find something that you can charge them with. Otherwise, leave them alone. That's really what happens here in Ephesus, is that they're stirring up a group of people who have made their livelihoods on something that is not of God. And when people of God point that out, the people get defensive and aggressive. And this should be something that we take very seriously. Because again, we are these people. What we think is most important is ultimately what we worship, whether we use that word or not. And what we worship, if it is not of God, we should be afraid of. And so as you leave, wearing nice things and nice cars to go eat nice food, just keep in mind that none of that is wrong unless it ultimately is more important than the faith that's been given you by God. And with that, (laughs) I leave you to have a lovely day. I'll see you next week.